I mean, this, uh, back this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we find where Paul writes in verse 6, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For godliness, for bodily exercise, excuse me, profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these sayings, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So here Paul is telling Timothy that if he will put the brethren in remembrance of these sayings, that word remembrance there means uh, instruction in these sayings, he says, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, himself nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. He says, whereunto thou hast attained. The word attain there is not the way we use it in our language today. When I say I have attained something, it usually means I have it in my hands. It's something I already possess. It's something that's mine. Here it means to follow closely with. So this was something that Timothy certainly had shown himself faithful in, but it wasn't as though he had arrived at the point that he could now neglect what Paul has just told him. So he says, put the brethren in remembrance of these things. What things specifically? Well, as you remember, he told us in the end of chapter 3 that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He was preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. Those are the things upon which the church stands. He lets us know in the verse before that this is the house of God, the church, the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so long as the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, maintains belief in those six things that Paul has here instructed, we know by our belief, that's an identifying mark, that we are the church, the living God, we are the house of God. He goes into the next chapter, if you'll recall, we looked at a couple weeks ago, and says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. He said these, there are those, rather, that will fall. They will fall away from the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That is a reality. We've all seen it happen. So Paul says it's important for the church, the living God, that is the pillar and ground of the truth, to maintain the principles that God was manifest in the flesh, that he was justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up their glory. Those are things that we must maintain as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we fail, 
in that we have fallen from grace. We have forsaken the truth of the word of God. We are no longer holding faithful to the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's happened? We have given heed to seducing, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. One of the ways we know what a seducing spirit and a doctrine of a devil is, it goes on to put rules upon the child of God that God himself has not placed upon us. So anytime somebody stands before you and tries to put you back under the law in any sense, you know that that individual is not preaching the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we have no more obligation in the New Testament. We certainly do. There's many commandments, as we'll see this morning, that are giving, given to us by the Lord Jesus and by the apostles that we are to maintain. But we're to maintain these things out of a offering of thanksgiving to the Lord, not in order that we might obtain salvation from the Lord. But a seducing spirit and a doctrine of a devil is something that's going to teach you that in order to obtain salvation of any sort, especially eternal salvation, then you must comply with A, B, C, or D in order to arrive at that place. Again, he says, they're going to tell you that there's certain meats you can't eat. You're going to be forbidden to marry. There's going to be things that are to be clearly contrary to the word of God. The word of God, of course, makes it clear when Adam was made that it was not good that man should be alone. So God made Eve as a helpmate for Adam and brought him to her. Of course, they uh, dwelt together for the rest of their days. God intended for man to marry. Uh, Paul would say in Hebrews 13, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. He says they'll also say there are certain meats you're not supposed to eat. Well, I realize that the Jewish uh, law had commandments that there were certain meats they were to abstain from. But according to Acts chapter 10, when the apostle Peter was seeing a vision, when God was sending it, telling him to go preach to the Gentiles, the way that God communicated that was to drop out of heaven a sheet knit at the four corners. In other words, just imagine basically a, a basket, if you will, made out of a sheet. And in that sheet let down from heaven three times were all manner of unclean beasts, everything found in Leviticus that they were commanded not to eat. And what did God tell Peter to do? He says, rise, slay, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. And God said, what God hath cleansed, call thou not common or unclean. So Paul says that these meats have been sanctified by the word of God. That means God has declared that you and I can now partake of these things. That doesn't mean it's necessarily wise to take, uh, partake of all these things. Uh, there are certain things that God commanded us not to eat because he knew it wasn't good for our health. But God has removed that restriction. Again, it's your choice now whether to eat shrimp and catfish and some of the things that God said not to eat. Uh, I eat some of those things. Some of them I don't, not because I'm too concerned about health. I just don't like them. But uh, here the apostle says these have been sanctified, first of all, by the word of God. God has, says, has said that restriction has been removed. He said it also been sanctified by prayer. In other words, when we give thanks for it, we know that God has given it for our use. And in fact, if you look after the fall of man... God made it clear that uh, the beasts of the field even were given to man for his benefit. And so before the law of Moses enters into the picture, there was no restriction that God gave Adam about the things that he could eat. The only restriction God ever gave Adam, of course, was that one tree that he was not to eat. He did. He fell. God placed no further restriction on what he could or could not eat after that. And so we know under the law of Moses, there's a lot of laws that God gave for sanitation reasons and health reasons. Anyway, we come now to 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, if the man of God will be faithful, 
to remind the church of God that great is the mystery of godliness. And this is without question. Now, now that doesn't mean there's people that disagree with this. There are. But in the church of God, this should always be without question. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It ought to always amaze us about the way of God. God's way ought to astound us to think that God was manifest in the flesh. Again, that's astounding to me, that God took on the name Emmanuel, God with us, so that one day we will be with him. That's an amazing reality, and that's something the church should never give ground on. We should always maintain that God came in the flesh. As John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now I realize John literally beheld it, but I'm thankful that through the gospel, uh, through the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm able by faith to see the same glory that they were able to behold with their natural eyes. Through the eyes of my uh, spirit and soul, I'm able to see those things from time to time. And I thank God that I'm able to behold his glory. So the Lord was manifest in the flesh, and we should never give ground on that reality. But we ought to also remember that while Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he was always God. He never ceased to be God when he came into this world. The Bible says God sent forth his Son. God didn't make a son. God sent forth his son. God's son was with him in glory. And God sent forth his son made under the law, uh, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. We should never uh, be afraid of that truth. We should never be ashamed of that truth. We ought to always embrace the reality that Jesus Christ is the God man. He's God's eternal son, and then by birth he became the son of man. And seated right now at the right hand of God is the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and the son of man. He is still man and he's still God. And as he sits there enthroned in his glory, he sits there as God's son that's been given a name above every name. And why was he given that name? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but now crowned with glory and honor. So we need to always maintain the truth that God came in the flesh. He did not cease to be God to come in the flesh, but he came in the flesh so that you and I, one day, body, soul, and flesh, body, soul, and spirit, uh, will be with him in glory. We need to remember that he was vindicated, justified in the spirit. Everything that he did, God approved of. The Bible says that he did all things well. The Bible lets us know he always did those things which please the Father. I don't always do things that please the Father, but I know this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he always pleased the Father. Not one time was his Father displeased with him. Not one time was God the Father dissatisfied with God the Son. Never, not once. Imagine that. That here is a son that from the very moment of his conception until he left this world never thought, never said, and never did anything uh, that ever brought uh, disappointment to his father. Would to God we could live in such a way that we could say we've never disappointed our heavenly father. We have, but he has not. But thankfully the day is coming that you and I are going to be enshrouded in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus has never disappointed the father as far as God is looking at us, it'll be as though we never disappointed him as well. So Jesus was vindicated by the spirit of God in all things that he did. 
And then we see that he was also seen of angels, that uh, the heavenly host witnessed many things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven was interested in the affairs and the life of Jesus while he lived here on this earth. If they were interested in it, we ought to be as well. And then he was preached to the Gentiles. What a glorious truth that is. You know, there were Gentiles that were children of God even before the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, very, and very few of them knew it. Very few of them had that declared to them, that they were God's people, that they were God's children, that they were owned by God, that God uh, possessed them. And because of that, their inheritance would be with God in glory forever. They didn't know that truth. But thankfully, because he was preached to the Gentiles, that's been expressed to you and me. And so we've been included in the New Testament kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth of what Jesus has done eternally for our lives has been declared and proclaimed to us. And what a glorious privilege that is. It's been extended to us in this age that in the age before the coming of the Lord Jesus, that was not so for the Gentile people, wholesale at least. And then lastly, he was believed on in the world. Now, whether he was believed on in the world or not really doesn't uh, change the fact that he is who he is. But the fact is, God sent his spirit and faith into the hearts of his children to testify, just as the spirit vindicated his son, to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there have been men, women, and children throughout the ages that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he was received up into glory where he sits right now. So Paul says, if thou will put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So here the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, your responsibility as a man of God primarily is to teach. Again, that word remembrance primarily means instruction. My main job is not to run uh, here and there to nursing homes and hospitals. My main responsibility is not to take care of funerals and weddings. My main responsibility is not to be the janitor of the church. That's not what God has appointed and called me primarily to do. Now, it's not, there's nothing wrong with a man of God visiting the sick. He ought to. He ought to have a heart for folks like that. But the main responsibility of the man of God, as you look throughout the word of God, is to make sure God's people are taught the truth. So he says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance, if you will teach these things, he says, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, himself nourished. If the man of God's nourished, though, what's it going to do for the people of God? They themselves likewise will be nourished or nurtured up, he says, in the words of faith and of good doctrine. Now, when he says good doctrine, that uh, qualifies doctrine here, does it not? I mean, that tells me there's a difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine. That lets me know there is bad doctrine, and that means I need to be careful about what I believe. What I believe matters. Now, there are many that uh, go by the name Christian in this world today that says doctrine does not matter. You know, let's not talk about doctrine. The, the phrase will be this way, doctrine divides. It does. <laughs> They're right about that. Doctrine does divide, and it's supposed to. That's why it's here. Uh, the truth uh, shines light on error. And I don't know about you, but I want to be divided away from the error of this world. I want to be secured by the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so doctrine, in, by its very intention, was to divide. So for those who uh, criticize, those who would preach doctrine and bring division, 
It's not the preaching that brings division. What it's doing is the truth is shining light on error. Error is the problem to start with. It reminds me of the days of Elijah. After he had prayed that it wouldn't rain, and after three and a half years when God says it was time for him to meet with Ahab. Remember what Ahab says when he meets uh, Elijah there on Mount Carmel. He said, art thou he that troubleth Israel? It's amazing to me that usually the person that's right is the one who's criticized for causing the problem. Here he says, art thou he that troubleth Israel? It wasn't Elijah that troubled Israel. Now, there was no rain for three and a half years because of his prayer. But God told him to do that. Why? Because the people had believed in false gods and they thought those gods would provide their needs. And so God was showing them that the gods they were trusting in were no gods at all. And so they were in trouble. But they brought the trouble on themselves. And Ahab was the ringleader of those things. By allowing uh, the pagan idolatry uh, and the worship of false gods into the nation of Israel, it was Ahab that brought trouble to Israel, not Elijah. Elijah didn't trouble Israel. The people of Israel, under the leadership of Ahab, they brought trouble on themselves. And most of the time, the trouble you and I experience, we brought it on ourselves. Of course, we know that God used Elijah to prove and show that God was the only God. You remember there on that mountain, they cried all day long, begging their gods to uh, hearken and hear, uh, to bring down fire from heaven to consume their offering. And they did that uh, uh, till dinner time, and finally about supper time, uh, we find that Elijah finally got tired of all of that. He watched it for a while. He mocked them. They got to the point that they literally took lancet knives and cut themselves in hopes that the shedding of their blood would get their God's attention. Aren't you grateful that the God you serve has never required the spilling of your blood to gain his attention? Uh, now, God's attention, uh, it did require the shedding of blood, but never ours. Uh, it required the shedding of the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize in the Old Testament day, there were many beasts that they were slain and their blood was shed. But all that was a portrait and a picture and a symbol of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason the Bible says that he stood as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everything that God, God gave Moses in the Old Testament law uh, was specific to what God had called the Lord Jesus Christ to do before the world ever began. God didn't do that by happenstance. He didn't say, well, it'll just be a good idea for the blood of bulls and goats to be brought into the house of God. All of that pointed to the perfect offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, here you have Elijah there. They're shedding blood to try to get the attention of their God. I am thankful to know that the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers, that he hears the quietest cry of the child of God, even though it might be whispered only in the depths of their souls, he's very much aware of it. They cry all day long. Uh, finally, Elijah says, well, maybe your God's on a journey. Uh, maybe he's talking. Peradventure, he's asleep. You know, he, he's busy. He's distracted. He's just not around. Cry louder. He's a God. Uh, that's what you all say, so just cry more. And finally, at the end of the day, he says, okay, <laughs> this is time for the foolishness to be over with. He prayed to God, and God sent down fire from heaven that not only consumed the offering, but the altar and even the dust there around. God showed his mighty power that day and showed that Elijah was not the one troubling Israel, that the teachings of Elijah were the teachings that the people of God needed. Timothy was instructed that what he taught was to be words of faith and it was to be good doctrine. It was to be correct teaching 
Again, it may divide, but it just shows the reality of error. And like I've said already, if I'm believing something wrong, I'd rather that be exposed. I want to know if I'm wrong about something, especially things as important as things concerning my relationship with God and my home with God in heaven forevermore. I want to know the reality of that. I want to know the truth about that. I don't want to be deceived about those things. And if I am, I hope somebody would take a pity on me and show me compassion and show me where I'm wrong. So again, he says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Again, that just means he had walked along with these things. So far, he had not abandoned words of faith and good doctrine. He says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Now, I don't know exactly what an old wives' fable is. I just know it's a fairy tale. And why it is that it mentions old wives, but we've all heard of wives' tales. Some of them are true, some of them are not. Now, the Apostle Paul will tell Timothy in multiple places that there's things he's supposed to avoid. He says, endless genealogies, avoid them. Why? He says, they engender uh, uh, strife. He says, foolish and unlearned questions, avoid. Why? They just gender strife. So there are questions that people ask me sometimes that I, as I contemplate the question, I think to myself, number one, why are we asking the question? There is no way that I can give an answer that's absolute on that. So why are we even getting into that territory? Let's stay in the area that the word of God speaks of. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy, basically. He says, don't get out here into the world of conspiracy. Stay in the world of God's word. Let's stay right here between the lids of the pages of the Word of God in the things that we do know, in the things that we can understand. There's a lot of things that I will never understand this side of heaven, and that's fine. But God has given me enough understanding, and He's given me enough to study in His Word to keep me busy for the rest of my life so that I don't have to uh, uh, entertain myself with the foolishness of this world. Again, endless genealogies, what do they matter? Well, to the Jews, they were very important. He says, foolish and unlearned questions. People who are just trying to stir up things by asking just dumb questions. He said, avoid that stuff. He says, profane and old wife fables. He said, leave those things alone. He says, but rather exercise thyself, rather unto godliness. That word exercise literally means the gymnasium. The same word that uh, translates to the English word gymnasium, the Greek word, is the same here for exercise. So he says, you and I, instead of listening to profane and wives' fables, we are rather to go to the gym (laughs) on a daily basis, exercise ourselves rather unto godliness. Again, that word godliness comes from the old English word godlikeness. Say, well, I can't be like God. Yes, you can in some ways. Now, not in every way. I'm not, uh, I'm not all-powerful. As Brother Matt prayed in his prayer, there are times that we try to take charge of our own lives and figure things out for ourselves and try to do things without the help of God and trusting God. And we'll find ourselves in a great trouble very quickly uh, taking that route. So I've got to remember that while I'm trying to be godly in my behavior, I cannot take on the attribute of God's sovereign power. I don't have that. But I can take on his attribute of mercy. I can take on the attribute of truth, the attribute of loving kindness, the attribute of mercy, the attribute of godly judgment. 
uh, the attribute of godly wisdom. There are many things about God that I can take on that. In fact, I am made a partaker, what? Of the divine nature. There are some things about the nature of God that you and I are now partakers of when we're born of the Spirit of God. However, it requires us, once we're born of the Spirit of God and made partakers of the divine nature, that we have to exercise, he says, ourselves rather unto godliness. It's not something that's going to be automatic. Now, I am not one for exercise. <laughs> Apparently so. I mean, you can just look at me until. I, I don't care about it. Uh, it's not something that I have any desire toward. One time in my life, I bought a gym membership. And very quickly realized that was a big waste of my money. I called him and asked him how I could get out of the contract. I couldn't accept, just pay it off. I paid it off and didn't go the rest of the year. It was a big waste of my money. Now, I'm not saying that bodily exercise is wrong. We'll get to that in just a moment. However, if you're going to live a God-like life, it has to be on purpose. It takes discipline. It takes dedication. It takes a willingness to keep your attention on these things. Brother Matt, I'm not going to make fun of you, but I'm going to use, Brother Matt's probably, the, I guess, the most faithful about exercise among us that I know of anyway. And he loves to run. I do not love to run. Uh, as I've said before, if I'm running, there's something desperately wrong. Uh, but... Uh, Either my car isn't working and something's after me or I've run out of bullets. And so that's why I would be running. Otherwise, I, I just don't need, well, I say that. I ran yesterday a few feet over to a fence anyway. Uh, but anyway, I, I do know this about it. And Brother Matt could prove this. You can't, I could not go out right now and run a 5K. I know that. <laughs> I don't need to go out and try it to prove it. I know that I can't run a 5K right now. I would run a few yards and then I, I would just run, and I'd just stop. I'm not a fool, so I wouldn't just keep going until I literally dropped. So I would just stop. I know that I can't do it. Uh, so I'm not even going to make the attempt. I, I cannot. That's something that has to be built up to. I realize that. Uh, I, I know if I went back to a gym, which I never plan to do, uh, if I went back to the gym and say I wanted to bench press, uh, I don't know what is even a, 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 an amount that 200 pounds, I doubt that I could do that right off the bat. Um, I don't think I could lift 200 pounds. I know there was a time where I probably could, but I, I think I've passed that day without doing some exercise to get to that point. So here he says we are to exercise ourselves to godliness. That means this is something we must put effort into. It's not going to happen automatically. See, some folks mix up working for heaven Versus working right now to labor, to simply live as God and live as God would have us live. There are many, that's what the problem is for many in Christendom today is they've got those two things mixed up. That their labor, they're laboring to get to glory when you and I know that Jesus took care of that labor. And that's why he said in Matthew 11, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. We can go to him knowing that there's rest in Christ. He's already won that battle for us. There's nothing for me to exercise myself towards as far as gaining eternal life. But there are things that I am to do to exercise in in godliness to try to live the life that he has commanded me to live. Again, it's not going to happen automatically. It's going to take diligence. It's going to take purpose. It's going to take discipline. For instance, reading the Bible through in a year, that takes 
Number one, having a plan. Number two, having the will to follow through. Number three, when you get behind or there's days you just don't feel like doing it, say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I hear people talk about uh, at work, well, I didn't really feel like going to the gym this morning, but I pushed myself and I went anyway. You know, good for them. I'm glad they did. Uh, they may live longer. Uh, but either, anyway, the same thing for us. So if we're going to live a godlike life, then every day that I arise, I have to say, well, even though I may not feel up to it, that person that's wrong me, I'd rather hold a grudge right now. I'd really not like to show them a long-suffering spirit right now. I really don't want to be merciful to this person or this situation. I don't want uh, to read the Word of God right, or just name it. And there's times that we're not in the mood and don't have the spirit to do those things. That's just the reality of our earthly existence. We are still caring about this uh, uh, carnal nature that wants us to follow after evil things instead of godly things. So that's there. And that's the daily battle that we struggle with. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, or verse, excuse me, Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That expression means that he was carrying about, as it were, a dead carcass on it, and he wanted to be delivered from that. It just means when am I going to be delivered, or how am I going to be delivered uh, from this situation that I find myself in, having a desire to do the things that Christ has called me to do, and yet not finding the strength or the will or the follow-through to do those things. Paul says, you and I are not to listen to profane and wise fables, but we're to exercise ourselves rather unto godliness. In verse 8 he says, for bodily exercise profiteth little. Now, in a good Cambridge Bible, over in the center column, it'll say this, or for a little time. Bodily exercise is profitable so long as you do it. As soon as you stop, very quickly, your body is going to revert back to the poor shape it was in before you started. We all know that, right? I mean, if you uh, exercise muscles, strengthen them up, you stop, you're going to lose that muscle tone that you gain. That's just going to happen. So for a little time, bodily exercise profits. So Paul's not saying don't exercise. I've used this verse to get out of it, but I know that's not what he means. I playfully say that. But it also means it profiteth for a little while, meaning there's coming a time when, well, two things, that these body, I'm told that when you reach a certain age, you can no longer gain muscle tone. Whatever you've built up, you might, you might maintain it, but you're not going to gain more. So what's the profit at that point? Well, you hopefully keep your muscles strong. You know, one of the things that my great-grandmother used to tell me, I didn't comprehend it then, and I don't fully yet, but she would tell me she was too weak to do something. You know, outwardly, she looked fine. I understood, and I understand now what she meant, that her muscles had weakened. She just didn't have the physical strength. After that seizure that I had a few years ago and that, that brought such weakness on for me that lasted for weeks, I finally could look back to the things she had said and say, I kind of understand now what she was talking about. So bodily exercise will profit you for a while, but there's going to come a point in your life where it probably will not be much of an advantage anymore. But here's what Paul primarily means about it. There's coming a day when you're going to breathe your last. And when your body's in a casket six feet under, what good was all that exercise? It has no, it has no purpose now. It did you no good 
at that point. So it's good for a little time, for a little while. So, so he goes on to say, but godliness, godlikeness, exercising ourselves that way, is profitable unto all things. That means there's never a time in your experience that godliness and exercising yourself that way, that doesn't mean to the exclusion of bodily exercise. Again, I'm not going to because I just don't want to. But here, Paul said, he's not saying don't do that. But what he is saying, don't let that be your primary focus in life. There are people that I watch on Sunday mornings as I come to the house of God that are out jogging and riding bicycles. And I'm thinking to myself, what a waste. Yes, they may be very healthy. They may live longer than me. Or they may live a more enjoyable end of their life than what I may because I didn't do those things. I realize the risk of not doing it. I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, where is that really getting them? When uh, somebody says they rode 40 miles that day, okay, well, where did you get? To what was the point? If you're not willing to live your life in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that matter? What does it bring? What does it build? What does it do that has a lasting legacy that goes along with it? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to make fun, but I've known several men that were that would be almost pharisaical towards me because of my attitude about, uh, about exercise. And they were very, uh, very diligent about it and passed away in, in ways that were just quite astounding, given the health that they were supposedly in. And, you know, my doctor tells me that uh, uh, it's 95% genetics anyway, that whatever's coming in your life, it's pretty well determined by your uh, parents and, and what they inherited, and which is biblical, because we know what we inherited from Adam. So I asked the doctor one day, finally, I said, then why do you keep telling me that I need to drink this, eat this, don't eat this, don't drink that, and I need to do X amount of exercise a week if you're telling me it's 95% hereditary anyway? He said, we're just trying to delay the inevitable. That's all it is, a delay of the inevitable. Okay, fine. However, Paul says here that you and I exercising ourselves in God-likeness, that is always profitable. It will always bring a blessing in your experience, but also for those that dwell around you. He says it's profitable unto all things. Notice this, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So Paul has just said that bodily exercise, it profits until your life is no more. Godliness and exercise towards that, it brings a promise of the life that now is. There's blessings that attend that in the life that's now and also of that which is to come. Saying, Brother Chris, are you saying that godly living is going to get me a better place in glory? No. What it does, though, it, it, it allows you to lay hold on eternal life. It's living the earnest of your inheritance right now. Uh, that word lay hold on is mentioned twice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, and again in verse 19 where Paul tells us lay hold on eternal life. Hebrews chapter 6, he says, lay hold on the hope that is set before us. What does that mean? Godly living means we're reaching out and grasping that which God has freely given us. It's there for our taking. It's there for our use. It's much like the children of Israel when they went into the land of Canaan. 
They had many battles to fight. They had many cities to overrun. They had enemies to put down. But what was it that God was going to give them there? He was going to give them houses to dwell in. They didn't build. Vineyards to eat of. They didn't plant. Wells to drink from. They didn't dig. Uh, there were going to be many blessings and a rest that would come to them in the land that God had provided them if they simply would go in and drive out the enemy. That's true for you and I today as well. There are houses that you and I have to dwell in that God has built for us. There are vineyards that we eat of out of the word of God. There's wells in the word of God we drink from. Uh, there are many blessings that God has simply handed us by his mercy and his grace. But you and I have to lay hold on them. We just have to reach out and grab what God has given. Remember the children of Israel when they went in with the spies? They grabbed a part because they came back with the cluster of grapes there were 12 spies. They came back, took two men to carry one cluster of grapes. They took of the fruit of the land. They brought the proof of the bounty therein. But you know what? The children of Israel listened to the evil report of 10 spies that says, It's true. It is a land that flows with milk and honey, but there's giants in the land. And we, notice this, we were as grasshoppers in our sight. Not God's sight, not even the giant's sight. In their own sight, it was their perspective. We were as grasshoppers before them. So, of course, the children of Israel, they did not enjoy that rest because they would not grab on to what God had freely given them. So here Paul says, Bodily exercise profited little, but godliness is profitable unto all things because it has a promise of the life that now is, but also that which is to come. Then he says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. Now, anything that God has said is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptation. But you know, a few times Paul specifically tells us that. In the first chapter, when he lets us know that uh, he was a great sinner, he says this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom, he says, I am chief. He said, that's worthy to be believed. Well, so are these things that Paul has just said. You know, we love 1 Timothy 1.15. That's a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. I love that. But yet when Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that if I will exercise myself to godliness, that there's a promise that attends it in this life and the life to come, you know, I don't always enjoy that promise as much as I do the one in 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15, I realize that Jesus came to the world to save sinners. That's taken care of. It's done. It's satisfied. It's finished. I can rest in that. Nothing for me to do except give thanks to God for that reality. But this faithful saying that's also worthy of acceptation requires something of me. And sometimes I don't like that. But if I want the blessings that attend it, then I must do what it says that I must do. Anyway, then Paul goes on to say, verse 10, for therefore... We both labor and suffer reproach. Paul says we labor to do these things that God has commanded. And because we do these things, what thing? That when somebody smites me on one cheek, I turn the other to them. That those that use me despitefully and persecute me, I love them and I pray for them. That those that are unjust, I show mercy towards that those that bear down on me and maybe imprison me, I pray for them. He says, doing these things bring a reproach 
He says, because we trust in the living God. Trusting in the living God will bring some suffering and bring some reproach. Exercising yourself rather unto godliness, which has promise of the life that now is and that which is to come, it is going to cause some suffering. If nothing else, you're going to suffer the loss of things you would enjoy to your carnal nature. If you're going to live a godly life, there's some things you're going to separate yourself from. There's some things you're going to lose. But Paul said in the book of Philippians that those things that he lost in his laboring in Christ, he said he counted them what as dung, that I may win Christ. He recognized that those things were completely worthless. And so when the child of God recognizes that suffering, that loss becomes so minimal because of the gain you find in the kingdom of God. But there may be some loss that comes your way. And thank God, at least so far in our experience, we've not known the kind of loss and suffering that attends living a godly life from our, uh, our political leaders. So far, that hasn't happened here in our land in many years. And hopefully, you and I will get out of this world before that happens. But here Paul says, for therefore we labor and we suffer reproach because we serve, excuse me, trust in the living God. And he says, who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, I realize this verse is troublesome for some, and some would use it to trouble others. All right, so Paul just said that you and I, we suffer reproach because we trust the living God. There are dead gods that many people in this world trust in that are no gods. They have eyes they can't see. They have mouths they can't speak. They have hands they can't handle. But we have a God that sees, a God that hears, a God that knows, a God that cares, a God that responds, a God that intervenes. So you and I trust in the living God. And he's the only living God. There's no God beside him, the Bible says. You read the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, chapters 40s through the 50s, you'll find many times where he said, I am God, and there is none like me. Or he says, I am God, there's none else. I am God. Before me there was no God formed, and after me there shall be no God formed. He says that over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. Why? Because he's prophesying to a pagan king who was going, uh, who would embrace uh, idolatry, polytheism, and he was letting Cyrus, king of Persia, know that there's only one God. And, of course, his name is Jehovah. So he says there is only one living God, and we trust in the living God, he says, who is the Savior of all men. What does he mean here? The Savior of all men. He's the Savior of all kinds of men. We've looked at that earlier in uh, Timothy's, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy. When Paul told him he was to pray for all men, did he mean literally every human being? Again, I, there's nothing wrong if you want to pray for every human being on the face of this earth. But when Paul talks about that you and I are to give thanks, that we're to make supplications and intercessions for all men, he's letting us know for the circle of men around us. And he says all kinds, whether they be kings or those in authority or whether they be those in our family, those in our church, but those that are in our circle of life, those that we have influence over or who have influence over us. So when he says all men there, he doesn't necessarily mean literally every individual on the face of the globe. He means all kinds. So now he says he's the savior of all men. So the question is, what does he mean? What kind of savior here? Is he saving literally every single human being? 
Now, there are some that say, well, he's the Savior of all men and that he's able. And I agree with that. He is able to save all if he had been willing. But the Bible makes clear that God has an elect people. And outside of that elect people, there are none that will be saved. They do not have an opportunity for salvation. It's not something that they have a chance for. There are some that believe this. That the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is efficient. That means effective to save the elect. They are saved. But sufficient to save the non-elect if they would only believe. And sadly, there's some that bear our name that have bought into that lie. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed for specific people. There's a reason when the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement that he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. It showed that that blood was particular. That blood was not just shed in a way that it covered all humanity. It covered all the sins of only the elect family of God and no other. So what does he mean here when he says he's the Savior of all men? He says he's the Savior of all kinds of men. Whether they be rich, whether they be poor, whether they be kings or whether they be paupers, uh, whether they be ministers of the gospel or those sitting in the pew, whether they be those that uh, are black or white or whatever color, he's just letting us know that God has a people out of every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. But then he says, but especially of those that believe. There is a special salvation to the believer. When he says that he's the Savior of all men, again, he's the Savior of all kinds of men. And in that way, he's their eternal Savior to deliver them from hell to heaven. But to the believer, he's a special Savior. There's a special salvation that comes from God in believing the gospel. And it is not eternal. It is temporal. Our people used to call it conditional time salvation. You can call it blessings and obedience, whatever you want to call it. I just know this, that a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has a salvation that somebody who may be a child of God who does not know the gospel does not enjoy. There are two salvations at least taught in the word of God, at least two classifications of salvation, if you will. There is God's unconditional eternal salvation of his elect that was secured by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for every child of God from the very first one to the very last one and it will be there for every single one of them without fail. But there's also a a salvation that God gives his children who believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's a now salvation. It's a salvation that delivers us and blesses us while we live here in this world. Peter talked about it in Acts chapter 2 when those folks were baptized on the day of Pentecost. And he says that uh, they were to be saved from this untoward generation. By knowing the gospel and being part of the gospel kingdom, I have a salvation from an untoward generation. And so do you. You have a salvation from darkness, a salvation from ignorance, a salvation to light and freedom through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul means here when he says that we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. So God does not have two salvations in this sense that he is going to save his elect for sure and the non-elect if they will. That is not what this verse is saying. The verse is simply saying that all sorts of people God has saved. And there are some that while they're in their pilgrimage in this world are going to be blessed to know the gospel and they're going to see a special salvation that those who do not know the gospel may never know this side of glory. But thank God it won't keep them from getting to glory. But let's also thank God he's shown us 
in our journey. He says, these things command and teach. Then he says, let no man despise thy youth. Obviously, Timothy was a young man. Some people do not respect young men. And so he says, don't let them despise your youth. In other words, don't be shy about the truth just because you're young. He says, you're still to be bold. You're to be firm. You're to be set in the reality of these things that I have taught you. He says, let no man despise thy youth. And here's one way, he says, you can overcome their uh, despising. He says, but be thou an example of the believers. Right there with the believers. He, should, he says, show them by how you live that you're not to be despised. He says, here's what you're supposed to do. He says, in word, in the things you say. In conversation, that means how you live. He says, also in charity, in the love that you show. He says, in spirit, in the attitude that you have. He says, in faith, the things you believe. In purity, the cleanness of your life. He says, here's how you're to be an example of the believers. He says, until I come, give attendance. Notice the reading, exhortation to doctrine. You know how many times Paul has just showed us how important it is for the man of God to give attention to and instruct the word of God. He says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. He says, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. So here Timothy is commanded to meditate upon these things. Now, Eastern mysticism, Eastern religions, they have a practice of meditation. Yoga, some of those things are all tied in with that. Now, I realize some people use yoga today in a totally different way of how it was uh, come up with. And, and if you're using it as exercise and reflection, whatever, I, you know, go for it. <laughs> but the point, Eastern mysticism teaches meditation this way, to empty your mind. That's the goal, empty your mind. Now, I realize there's some things that you ought to put out of mind. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the mark prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So there are some things that the child of God ought to put out of mind. Maybe I've done some sin that I've confessed to God and he's forgiven me, but I'm still holding on to that sin and I'm still feeling guilty over it, even though God's already forgiven it. I need to put that out of mind. But the idea of Eastern meditation is literally empty the mind so that then it'll be filled with whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the things that bring peace, the things that bring, you know, it's just a vast nothingness. But the meditation in New Testament terms is not an emptying of the mind. It's actually a filling of the mind. Filling it with the word of God. Filling it with the spirit of God. And trying to fill it with the nature of God. Totally different. Again, the Eastern uh, Stoics and such would teach you just need to empty your mind out. So then it's ready to receive whatever. Well, there's a lot of empty-minded people around. <laughs> and sadly, what gets filled back in there isn't very good. That's why our nation is where it is. We've got a lot of empty-minded people that have embraced a lot of just ludicrous things because of their empty minds. But anyway, Paul says, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly. That means completely to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Then we close with this verse. He says, take heed unto thyself. And under the doctrine, Paul will tell Timothy more than once, and he will tell the, the elders of Ephesus that they were to take heed to themselves. 
This isn't a selfish thing. When he says, take heed to yourself, then he says here, and to the doctrine. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock. So here, Timothy is told, pay attention to yourself. That's what it means. Pay attention to yourself. That doesn't mean pamper yourself. That doesn't mean build yourself up. The point is, that means take heed to how you are behaving before you go further. See, if I'm not taking heed to myself, how am I going to take heed to the church of God? If I'm not taking heed to my behavior, my thinking, how am I going to take heed to the doctrine? So the first commandment is I'm to take heed to myself so that hopefully my mind and soul is in the right place so that then I can take heed unto the doctrine. So then he says, take heed unto thyself to the doctrine, continue in them. Continue in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So Timothy had a great weight on his shoulders, as do I. He says, if you will continue in these things, you will first save yourself, but also those that hear you. Now, this is not the weight that Timothy had. Timothy didn't have that. Well, if you'll do these things, you'll save yourself to heaven and anybody who hears you. That's not the salvation under consideration. It's the salvation Paul talked about in verse 10 when he says, he's a savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So a believer who has a pastor who has taken heed to himself and to the doctrine, who is saving himself by continuing in the doctrine and in godly behavior is far more apt to be saved themselves than somebody who does not have a pastor who will not take heed to himself or the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I am an imperfect person. I realize that better than anybody. And I, as I'm, I'm struggling just as much as anybody else to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a warfare. Paul would make clear in Galatians chapter 2 that the world was crucified to him. He was crucified to the world. Why do you think Paul used language like that? Or he would say, mortify therefore your members which are on the earth. Notice that language, mortify, crucify. Why is he using that language? He said there is something that you and I have to slay. There is something that you and I must crucify, put to death on a daily basis. That's not an enjoyable experience to our flesh, but yet it's required if we are going uh, to serve the living God. Uh, so you and I must do those things. So he says, take heed unto thyself, unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So I am struggling as much as you are to crucify, to mortify, to put away, uh, to keep under subjection, to do those things that are required by the word of God of me. So that hopefully I can be an example for you. And then he says, but you're also to continue in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue in them. What good is a gospel minister that he himself does not continue in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ? If he himself will not follow in those things, of course it's going to bring discouragement and potential for others to follow the way as well. Hopefully, the man of God will be so firmly set in the things of Christ, never willing to alter. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as he closed up that chapter, he says, Be ye steadfast, 
unmovable. You know, there are some things that I am completely unmovable about. I've said that before. I'll keep saying it. There are some things I will not alter on. Now, there are some things I can be flexible about. If the church wants, there's some churches in middle Georgia, they start at 11 o'clock instead of 1030. I don't care if the church wants to meet at 1030, noon, 1 o'clock, whenever. If the church is of a mind to do that, I'm movable about that. Church wants to meet at night. I'm movable about that. If the church doesn't want to meet at night, I'm fine about that. There's a lot of things we can be flexible about. If our annual meeting is going to start on Thursday night or whether it's going to start on Friday night, flexible about that. What month of the year is it going to be held? Doesn't really matter to me. Let's just have one because I enjoy them. Those are a lot of, there's a lot of things like that I can be flexible about. We used to have two plates on the table here. We now have no plate on the table here. Uh, we were flexible about that. Uh, there's things that we can be flexible about and should be if the need changes. There are other things I will not move on. I will not move on the doctrine of election. I will not move on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I will not move on the fact that I believe that the old Baptists are the true New Testament church. I will not yield on that. Now, I'm not saying that we're the only church. There may be. Somewhere in this world, a group of believers that have uh, continued on in their service to God that I'm not aware of. That may be. But I'll say this, that of the people I see around us in this community, and there are some wonderful, godly people in this community, I'm not going to be afraid to say that by their practice and by their belief, I cannot say that they're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's many other elements that are in the kingdom of God that I will not move on. And I hope that by my example, you will not either. I hope that there's things that you and I will concretely hold to till the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the drawing of our last breath. Because really, it is those things that keeps us secure. Not for heaven, but keeps our minds secure with all the challenges and all the seductions and all the deceit that Satan would throw our way. How sad would it be to have known the truth, but because I was willing to bend on some things and you were that before long those things began to slip away. And then the moment comes that you're getting ready to pass away and you're wondering, did I do enough? There was an individual that I thought knew better that the grave of one that they loved very much made the statement, I know they're in heaven because their good outweighed their bad. Somebody that sat under the sound of the preaching of the gospel for decades. <laughs> and yet when it came down to it, that had all slipped away in the moment. You know what? That it really mattered the most. As we've said before, this doctrine is good to live by. And I want to live by it because it does a lot for me. It does a lot for you. But it's also a doctrine to die by. And that's when you know it's the right one. When it's good for living and it's good for dying, you know you've got the right one. If you've got to change it at some point along the course, it wasn't the right one to start with. So holding these things, which I, I know in my experience being with believers at their death, that they could slip so quietly and peacefully from this world to the world to come because of their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. It told me that what we believe is exactly what we ought to believe because it was good for their life and it was good in their death. And again, as long as you don't have to alter what you believe to leave this world, then 
uh, uh, leave this world in peace. And you've got the right teachings. Hold on to them. Don't let anyone dissuade you of them, deceive you from them, or seduce you away from them. May God bless the Lord.